0: Good morning. My name is John, and I am the uh, proud husband of Debbie, as well as very privileged to be part of this community, of uh, Central Community Church, as well as to serve as an elder. So, which passage would be more fitting and appropriate for this beautiful May-long weekend weekend, than a passage about Sodom and Gomorrah? I got to warn you. At first glance, this will seem like a challenging passage. It's uh, it's right up there with uh, Jonathan's sermon on circumcision. (laughs) But uh, let's read it together. And uh, and even though from a distance, uh, a skeptic might scoff that um, that uh, that we're going to be seeing some kind of like a weird reverse auction. Uh, where God and Abraham are squabbling over the least number of people required to keep uh, Sodom and Gomorrah seeing another day, uh, even though we're talking about something that a cynic would would uh, really wonder about and, and kind of rub your face in, the idea that God would destroy whole cities in uh, sulfur and fire, I mean, that's enough to make... Uh, Uh, the uninformed skeptic's eyebrows raise. How could a God of love do that? Well, as we read through this passage, and I have to say that I have been incredibly blessed by this passage as I studied it this last week. As we read through passages that apparently are difficult, we find so many layers of richness, so many layers of truth. We find treasures that have direct application to us in our day, both uh, at a national and civilizational level, as well as our own lives. So let's read it together. This is the word of the Lord, Genesis 18. Then the men set out from there. They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. We're going to need the help of God to reveal his purposes for this passage. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you, we come before your word this morning mindful of our own neediness, our pride, our tendency to warp your words with our own flawed sense of justice and our need to impose our own scattered understanding on the appropriateness of your truth. Come Lord, be the teacher, speak through this important passage and in so doing, please shine your light on our darkness. Well, those of you that are Christians, I don't need to tell you that there are huge gaps between us and God. Grand canyons, massive gulfs between who we are and who God is. In the next few minutes, the big picture of what we're going to discover as we dive into this passage revolves around how God bridges gaps between him and us. There's three things I want you to understand. Number one, God bridges the gap between our ignorance and his infinite knowledge as he reveals his plans to us. That's verses 16 to 19. Secondly, God bridges the gap between our need for justice and fairness with, between that and the huge gap between the horrible evil that we see on the world in a daily basis by showing himself to be a God that evaluates, that is a God who judges, verses 20 and 21. And thirdly, God bridges the gap between our own failings and God's demand for moral perfection by providing intercessors, all sorts of different kinds of intercessors, including Abraham here in 1822 to 33. So uh, do you know what I mean by the term intercessor? That could be kind of a church word. An intercessor is, is like a mediator. It's a, it's a go-between. It's someone who uh, bridges the gap between two parties that have some distance. A perfect example of this is um, a pet story from our early family. My uh, three kids, they wanted to have an aquarium. That's fine. So we went to the aqu- bought a tank, went to the store, and my sons were enamored with the piranha. <laughs> well, we checked, OK, you know, they're, they're not dangerous as long as you don't you know stick your hand in. So we purchased it only to find out that you had to feed these fish live goldfish. And I'm sorry, I'm not a hunter. You know, the carnage of the food chain in the animal kingdom turns my stomach. Anyhow, we held our nose and we purchased them. Very quickly, though, these two piranha died. And I thought, oh no, the curse of my gardening is overflowing into the aquarium. <laughs> Deb will tell you the only thing I've ever successfully planted in my life is a chestnut tree when I was 10. <laughs> Somehow took the rest. everything else has died. I leave that to Debbie. And now these two piranha were dead. My kids were upset. What happened? Well, interestingly, we checked my daughter's closet and in her closet was a goldfish bowl with a steadily expanding number of goldfish. Jamie, what has been happening here? Jamie had been sneaking down when no one was looking and rescuing those poor defenseless goldfish, scooping them out of the tank, putting them, saving them, and the piranha were dying of starvation. So, my dear Jamie, my tender-hearted Jamie, was an intercessor who, who stood between those piranha and the goldfish and rescued the goldfish. That's what an intercessor is. Well, let's see how this is shown in the passage. Let's pick it up in verse 16. The men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Who are these men that we're talking about? Well, as we go back a few verses, we find out that Abraham has been entertaining three visitors. He was sitting in the door of his tent. Oh, I'm sorry, the flap of his tent. And three men show up. Now, the narrator tells us that one of these is none other than the Lord, but there's no indication that Abraham knows who the, their identity is. But as, as the story unfolds, it becomes very evident that there's something very otherworldly, supernatural about these individuals. It becomes, in, it becomes evident that we're not only dealing with the Lord himself appearing in human form, but the, the other two are angels. But Abraham is a gracious host, and he prepares this wonderful meal for his visitors, and then the visitors start to prophesy, reaffirming a prophes- prophecy that his old barren wife was going to have a child when they returned the year after, and uh, they displayed knowledge. They rebuked uh, Sarah, his wife, for lying. It became very evident that we're dealing with not human beings, but supernatural visitors. So in verse 16, after the meal, it says, "'Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom.'" Now, as best as we can tell, Sodom was uh, on one end of the Dead Sea, close to the edge of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is is the lowest body of water on earth. So evidently, they're looking up on the bluff around uh, Hebron, looking down on on these two cities. And uh, Abraham, it says, is following them, ever the good host, to set them on their way. But the men were looking down towards Sodom, and this is the first glimmer that uh, there's, they're interested in the city and that something deeper is at play. Continue on. Then the Lord starts talking, and he, what he says is extraordinarily intriguing. The Lord says, apparently to the two angels, within earshot of Abraham, he says in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all, and all the earth will be, shall be blessed in him. This brings us to the first thing we want to observe about this passage. As God is talking, he demonstrates that he is a God who reveals his purposes. God bridges the gap between his infinite knowledge and our tiny, fragile three-and-a-half-pound brains that are prone to error. But the way that he reveals his secrets to Abraham is extraordinarily interesting. Here, Abraham is given the opportunity to be a privileged confidant. He's given access, allowed to hear the thoughts of God as he's talking with the two other messengers. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that conversation? But then God starts off in a very interesting way. He says... Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, notice how this wording draws Abraham into the conversation. Let me ask you, uh, when you were a kid or even as an adult, if somebody said to you, I really shouldn't tell you this, but what happens? (laughs) Suddenly, your mental radar is sent Set, set to maximum sensitivity. The dial that controls your curiosity is cranked all the way to the right. And now Abraham is focused and God continues to reveal more of his purposes. Let's continue on into 18. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. God starts by reiterating his promises that he made to Abraham. Abraham has, as you know from our studies, have been given many incredible promises. There's a promise that he would become a great nation. There is a promise that he would be blessed, that his name would be great. There's a promise of land for his descendants. And perhaps the most important promise was that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. And, of course, that occurred from the line from Abraham to the the coming of Jesus Christ. But here, and I want you to catch this because it has direct application for us today, God shows something new. How did God intend to activate those wonderful promises to Abraham? It's one thing for someone to make you this incredible promise, promise you all of these things. It's another thing to actually deliver them. How was God going to deliver these promises to Abraham. Notice how God revealed his plan of how these promises were going to come about. Look at verse 19. For I, that is God, have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him you catch that? Abraham was chosen. Why? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And God reveals that it is through the training of Abraham's family that God would reveal and activate and fulfill these incredible promises. Those of you that have been blessed with kids, in one sense, What began with Abraham and this revelation that God gave him, began with Abraham and his faithfulness teaching his own family has multiplied down the generations to my family, to your family. And it is in the training of households, uh, your kids, that God actualizes, he activates, he puts into motion the promises of Abraham right down to this day and when Those kids leave for uh, Kids Central. Don't you just love that thunder, that energy as they they storm out of here? You can almost feel the floor vibrate. We love that. That is those of you who volunteer in Sunday school, those of you that are here at 8 o'clock to unload the truck and set up faithfully week after week, you are part of the fulfillment of of this promise that God revealed to Abraham. You know, uh, one of the most precious parts of my childhood involves this book right here. Any of you ever have this book as a kid? It's Egermeyer's Bible Storybook. When I was five years old, my dear grandpa stayed, gave me this book for a birthday present, and for the next at least five years, my mother faithfully, before we went to bed, read right through this book to her children. This is, uh, out of all of the books I own, there's none more precious to me than this. Do not give up, do not allow the busyness of your life to crowd out family devotions. And and uh, what we are doing here this morning with uh, Kids Central is so important, and uh, we just support Crystal and Dan and the entire team. They are they are part of the community. It takes a village to channel these promises. This the way that these promises were activated through Abraham. Anyhow, back to our passage. God began deliberating about whether he should hide from Abraham, what he wants to do, and he continues to reveal the reason why they're up on that bluff looking down at Sodom. Let's pick it up at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not... I will know. And this brings us to our second point. We worship a God who bridges the gap for our need for justice, our need for fairness, and the horrible evil that we see around us. He bridges that gap by being a God who evaluates and a God who judges. So why is God investigating and judging these cities? We are told, and again, fascinating language, we're, we're told that the outcry of, against these cities is great and that their sin is very grave. Who is crying against these cities? The victims of their sin. God experiences the horrible evil that we see played out around us on a daily basis. He experiences that evil as an outcry, as a cry. God is not some remote absent landlord who ignores the pain that you see all around you. The suffering of the world comes to God as a cry. Remember at the beginning of the Bible, after, after, the, words, after the world's first murder of Abel, the Lord asks Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me out of the ground. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, in in Revelation, Revelation 6, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of the Lord and for the witness they had borne. And they, notice, cried out. In heaven, they cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And oh my goodness, I think most of you are aware that the number of those fellow servants of those martyrs who are being killed in our day is horrific. And the cry that God must be hearing from the uh, assassination and obliteration of of his children must be deafening. Uh, One organization called Open Doors that um, monitors and tracks and advocates the persecuted church, they estimate that in the top 50 countries where Christians are persecuted, persecuted, there's a fully 245 million Christians in the world that are under threat. An increase of over 30 million in 2018. One out of nine Christians globally experiences high levels of persecutions in all of the world's 195 or so countries. But this passage is telling us that those cries from Abel right to the victims of Sodom and Gomorrah that God is hearing, right to the martyrs in Revelation are heard by God and that he evaluates, he investigates, and he judges the horrible brutality and pain suffered by the innocent. Sometimes that judgment is delayed for a while, but it will come delayed, as if we're told in Revelation. But sometimes God acts directly, as he is about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. So why were Sodom and Gomorrah being judged? Well, we know something about the sin. Um, as we move into chapter 9, uh, we, are, we are told that the two in, uh, angels that went to visit Lot uh, were threatened with the savagery and brutality of the entire city. It says, down to the last man, young and low, everyone in the city, every male at least in the city, attempted to assault these two angels. It says they tried to bash down the door of Lot's house. And even when the angels blinded them, they still were groping, trying to get at the visitors. What a sick picture. And besides their violence, Ezekiel expands our understanding of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah by adding that it was their lack of pride and their arrogance and their lack of compassion for the needy that added to their list of sins. And uh, and incidentally, uh, I I love following the discoveries of archaeology, but sometimes it can be very sobering. The... uh, some, some of the things that they have dug up uh, in, uh, in this area of the world, in, in Canaan, show uh, without question that there was brutal, brutal child sacrifice going on. Well, our skeptic, um, our cynic, might say something like, well, how could you worship a God who would judge the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, or, or something like, I, I can't accept a God who judges. I, I accept a God who is merciful. But according to this passage, the judgment of God is not the opposite to the mercy of God. Sometimes God's judgment against the oppressors is an act of mercy for the victims. Uh, Think think of uh, how uh, uh, the uh, Jews in the death camps in the Second World War responded when the allied soldiers came and judged their guards by releasing them. God as a judge, God as administering justice is often intertwined and the same thing as his mercy. So... Sodom and Gomorrah's time is up. Uh, One of the things, one of my hobbies, I guess, one of the things I'm really interested in is is studying civilizations and empires and trying to figure out why it is that some of them disappear. In fact, eventually they all disappear. But what are the factors that make an empire great? And what are the factors that turn it on its head and... uh, and uh, allow it to disappear. Uh, This book, sorry, I'm picking my library here, but uh, Will and Ariel Durant have written a book called The Lessons of History. And uh, and they have this really pithy statement that is the result of a whole lifetime of the study of, of the rise and fall of empires. And they come up with a conclusion, now catch this, it's really good. It says, countries begin as Stoics, and end as Epicureans. you know what they mean by that? Countries begin, they achieve their greatness, civilizations achieve their greatness as Stoics, in other words, as disciplined, as foregoing immediate gratification, as building and uh, sacrificing for their future. But that sacrifice, that discipline breeds wealth, And that wealth leads to Epicureanism, which is the pursuit of pleasure. And and, uh, as he chronicles the rise and fall of countless civilizations, that cycle is in play. And you can see, of course, that Sodom and Gomorrah fit that perfectly with their sins. So back to verse 21. The Lord says... I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that have come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now the intention of the Lord, what he's revealing to Abraham is becoming clear. Sodom and Gomorrah's survival is now on the chopping block, and now Abraham does a remarkable thing that has a direct application to our life. And we move on to our third point. Amazingly, Abraham becomes an intercessor for the people living in these evil cities. Our third point is that God bridges the gap between our flaws and failures and his righteousness by providing intercessors. God uses intercessors. So remember, An intercessor is a mediator, right? A go-between, between between two parties. But what I want you to notice as we move into verse 22 is how Abraham, as becoming an intercessor, develops this boldness. Uh, The two angels, it says, left. They turned and they went there towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham had a transformation. He became very different from that fearful, quaking Abraham that we studied about a few chapters back when he was in Egypt, so afraid that he would lose his wife that uh, he lied about Sarah being his sister to save his own skin. Now, in this context, Abraham almost becomes audacious. It says in verse 23 that Abraham drew near to the Lord. One commentator I read, who knows way more Hebrew than I do, said that this is the first time that a human being has dared to initiate a conversation with God. And another scholar, even more interesting, another scholar says that the language drawing near to God is, in Hebrew, actually a legal phrase. Abraham isn't just standing there. He is drawing near to God, and it's, he is drawing near to God in a legal sense, like, a, like an intercessor as a legal counsel, as a lawyer, as an attorney. Other prophets, like Moses, had, uh, had, had uh, acted as intercessors for the people, but that was for the people of Israel. This is different. Here, Abraham is advocating for Israelites. Not for Israelites, sorry, but for foreigners. And as an intercessor... He boldly comes with two arguments in verse 23. He says, follow them. He says, "'Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just?' So if you follow this legal argument, you see that he makes two points, three times. In verses 24 and 25, he points to the complete inconsistency, the utter inappropriateness of God treating those who are evil the same way as treating, he treats those who are righteous. But he goes beyond that. He appeals to God's requirement to do justice, as the necessary consequence as as God being the judge of all the earth. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Amazing. But not as amazing as God's reply. God agrees with Abraham's request. He says, but his language contains a shift. Follow it carefully. Notice how God responds. And the Lord said... If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Did you notice the new word that God put in there? It's the word spare. Okay, back to my Hebrew scholars. I just, you know, I'm sorry, I like studying this stuff, so bear with me. According to Hebrew scholars I read, this word spare means a lot more than just surviving, allowing to survive. It's actually a term. That can also mean forgiveness, to forgive. And you remember how the dialogue continues from there. Five more times, Abraham asks that that number be reduced. He starts by five, fifty, forty-five, forty, and then he starts uh, going for tens, to thirty, down to twenty, then ten. And as God demonstrates, His patience demonstrates his mercy and grace. Moses' posture is launched from a sense of humility and extreme respect. I love the way Abraham addresses the Lord in verse 27. He says, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust in ashes. And as the numbers decrease... Finally, in verse 32, Abraham asks, suppose 10 are found there? And God answers, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. We're not told. Ever wonder, read this when you learned it in Sunday school? Not told why we stopped at 10, but you know, perhaps because Abraham, Lot's family, Uh, who was uh, uh, Abraham's relative because his family maybe added up to eight. But regardless, in Abraham's intercession for these cities, something profound has happened here, and this is the big aha that, that I found this week that I want to share with you. I've never seen this before. Really exciting. In the ancient world, and increasingly in our own legal system, Guilt was assumed to be collective. (laughs) What in in the world do you mean by that, Harris? Well, if a group from your family, your clan, or your tribe committed a a crime, we, through our Western eyes, assume that the individual who committed the crime or the people that committed the crime should bear the punishment. That's how our legal system uh, historically has been been, uh, set up. You know, if you uh, do the crime, you do the time, right? But that's not the way that the ancients understood it at all. If someone from your clan or your tribe committed a serious offense, you, because you're a member of that group, can be held liable. You can be judged as guilty, even if you personally didn't do a thing. That is the meaning of collective guilt. The whole group could be held liable, could be held guilty for the actions of a few. But God, and this is, this is what really excited me, God, as he allows Abraham to negotiate with him, he leads Abraham into a stunning insight. What if that, the process of that collective guilt could be reversed? What if collective guilt could be stood on its head? What if instead of the guilt of the few transferring and expanding onto the guilt of everyone else could be changed... So that it's not the guilt of the few that leads to the guilt of the many, but what if it could be changed so that the righteousness of the few, the righteousness of the ten, could expand into the forgiveness and the survival of the many? What a profound truth Abraham has discovered here. But, of course, he failed as an intercessor, Sodom didn't have the righteous people, needed to save the many. And what was required, and this is what Abraham is symbolizing as an intercessor, what is required is a much more radical righteousness. For that transfer of righteousness to occur, there has to be the provision of something like a suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Remember? Who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The righteousness of the one, the suffering of the one, radiates out and expands into the healing of all. Then there's the need for a second Adam. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, 21? powerful verse, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Like it or not, we are part of a whole sorry creation of collective guilt collective guilt that expanded into the sin of these cities, the collective guilt that has come from the sin of, our, of Adam that has flowed from the horrific uh, sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, flowed into your life with the death that you've experienced in, uh, in your families to every grief and sorrow you felt. For as by a man came death. For as in Adam, all die. The guilt of one expands into the guilt of all. But now in Christ, that collective guilt has been reversed. Now the righteousness of the few, in this case the righteousness of the one, can be expanded into the righteousness and life of the many. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, the righteousness of the one expands into all being made alive. So Abraham is, is acting as an intercessor, and he wasn't successful in the end. But for that transfer of righteousness, to the guilty to occur, we need a better intercessor, of which Abraham was just a symbol. We need an intercessor who is a high priest, who in the words of Hebrews 7, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he also lives to make intercession for them. To experience that, that righteousness, that life, we need an intercessor who can eliminate all charges and justify us. In Romans 8, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. See, Abraham was a symbol of intercession that pointed forward to the great intercession Christ. But there's more intercessions than that, intercessors than that. We need an intercessor like the Holy Spirit, who we're told in Romans 8 helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in our journey this morning, as we've gone through this difficult passage, we've found incredible grace. We've seen, first of all, how God reveals his purposes to us. Secondly, we've seen how God is not an absentee landlord, but is actively involved in assessing and judging of the world. And thirdly, we've seen how God uses intercessors. I'd like to, uh, like to leave you with two takeaways. God, number one, God wants you to be an intercessor. Becoming an intercessor is not something that's limited to spiritual giants. It's a mandate for all Christians, all of us, He wants us to use the power of the intercessors he's provided for us as well as to take on the responsibility of becoming intercessors for others. It is not something that's limited to a small portion of the child of God. It's it's a requirement. And that's why we frequently have prayer uh, after the service. That's why Tuesday, uh, this Tuesday, if you need prayer... Uh, you come and uh, and uh, pray with the elders at 6:15, and uh, the the elders earnestly desire to take on that ministry of intercession. Oh, some of the some of the situations that we've come across, and some of the incredible answers to prayer that we have found, as people humble themselves. And I've had to do this too. I've had to rely in crises in my life on the intercession. And intercessors of the church. So come and become an inter- intercessor yourself, and shoulder the burdens, bring the burdens and difficulties of those around you to God. And, and so, but a lot of you are probably like me; it's a lot easier to give uh, help than receive help. Don't be afraid when something is really troubling you to come and draw on the resources of the intercession of the body of Christ. Samuel twelve twenty two and 23 says, Samuel's giving his farewell address, he says, For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Even a spiritual giant like the Apostle Paul needed intercessions, intercessor and intercession for himself. He said in Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. <laughs> Wait a second, couldn't Paul just pray for himself? No. Of course he could pray for himself, but he needed to draw on the resources of the Holy Spirit, channeling through his body, the body of Christ, for that power that comes from intercession. So that's the first takeaway. Uh, The second takeaway I want to leave with you with this amazing passage is this. Really simple, but profound. Don't underestimate the importance of living righteously. You cannot possibly understand the implications of you facing and overcoming the temptations that assail you and me every day. You, you don't know the effects of your righteousness. It's like a pebble that's flicked into a placid lake And uh, it plops in there, and these radiating little ripplets move out. And as other pebbles of conquered temptation are thrown in the lake, they interact, and they span generations. You have no idea of how you standing in your hour, hour of trial and your hour of temptation will impact the future. All it took was 10 people to save a whole city? What kind of power could flow into our land with whole churches living in holiness and integrity amidst our own Sodom and Gomorrah that we're living in? Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for the experiences and the lessons of the life of Abraham. Lord, we ask that like Abraham, we will take on your mandate to intercede for the members in our families, the members in our church, as well as the precious people that surround us in our community. Lord, give us your power to stand and to be among the ten righteous in Sodom. In Jesus' name, amen.